This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hi, it's Evan, though at least a few people on the internet know me as WTF Bach. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, which is to say, I want to discuss aspects that fascinate me. Me, someone who has essentially devoted a major part of my life to studying this studied, complex art, and share it with you. I heard that the way to be happy is to make others happy, so the way to love Bach is to make others love Bach? Well, I don't know about that. I think I'd be happy all shut in my cave with the score of the well-tempered clavier, but in any case, here I am speaking into a microphone, and we have a lot to discuss. Because now, we are very close to the end of our lengthy discussion about Bach's Art of Fugue. It has been over a year since I started discussing this monumental work, a cornerstone of Western art, really, and the fact that we are heading at least towards some semblance of the completion of a discussion is sort of unnerving. Here's an excerpt from my practice diary, a little diary about my musical endeavors that I've been keeping for around 10 years. Quote, I feel now I am starting to come to the end of my work on the art of fugue, which is to say that I am coming to the beginning of a competence. I suppose this is what Bach performance is. Maybe perhaps this could be said for the interpretation and performance of any great art, Shakespearean acting, I don't know. But to be able to perform one of these works for the first time, this is the end of the beginning, but truly the beginning of what has no end. The Art of Fugue study is coming to the moment where I can finally play the entire thing with conviction. I then, most likely, will play it like this, with this interpretation for a while, maybe even years, but then something will certainly happen. A revelation, a cantata, a teacher, something will happen and I will look back on my current idea as being naive. This is certain. I will have to rethink everything. But do I fret at the thought? Do I shrink from approaching this endless work? No. That one can throw a life at this craft is not a doomed certainty, but a joyous answer to the question, what is the meaning of my life? This is WTF. You may begin to think that I am now completely unhinged, but yes, this is how my musical diaries read. The point is that we too, as a podcast, have arrived at Fugue 12 of 14, and I'm beginning to think about all the things that I could have said about this music, all the things that I missed, all the new ideas, all the new love that embarking on such a project has given me for this music. But as one legendary producer, the now late Jim Zack from the extinct NOLA recording studios told me, I'll try and best do his accent, just put it out, kid. It's either that or keep tinkering with it for the rest of your life. Still, there is one thing which needs to be said about something which I really did miss. I neglected to speak about this subject, which was fugued in the eighth counterpoint and in the 11th appeared like this, upside down. Now, somehow I failed to mention in this 11th counterpoint episode that Bach here has begun spelling his name. That's right, in all my discussion mentioning golden sections and anti-golden sections and dissecting the structure and mentioning every possible entrance, I forgot to mention that this third subject here in the 11th Contrapuntus contains his name, and we hear it here. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about these notes. These are the notes B, A, C, 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 H. 
H is the German B natural, B is the German B flat. This is B A C C C H, and this is not something that is a coincidence. Since the three subjects of fugue eight are the inversion of the three subjects in fugue 11, one would think that they could look very carefully at the subject which would invert to B A C H. I mean that if one looked at the eighth counterpoint, one could simply invert this subject and say, ah, well, that's, that's an inversion of B-A-C-H. But actually, let's do that. Let's try this. So if I invert those notes, I actually get this, which is not B-A-C-H. It's B-C-H-D. Because you can hear that the first note goes down and then up. And if we go over to the 11th counterpoint now, and we look at the moment where he starts spelling his name, we see that it is also the first note down. So this, even though it goes up as a phrase, the opposite direction of the eighth counterpoint, down. If I play them together, you'll hear the opposite directions. These are not mirror images, because why? Because this is parallel motion, traveling in the same direction. A true mirror inversion would sound like this, or something like this. So this implies that actually Bach went out of his way to not create the inversion here, but sort of disobeyed the laws of inversion in order to spell B-A-C-H. Now it does come in the 11th counterpoint in the correctly inverted form. This would sound something like this, if it were inverted, and indeed, we see an instance where, remarkably, that theme both comes in inversion and in the rectus. At bar 152, we have this. And that, we can see, is a mirror image. So, indeed, Bach does pay attention to the true laws of inversion there in inverting that subject, but right there, when the subject sort of enters the first time, he spells... B-A-C-H in transposition here, starting from E-flat and starting from B-flat, and he straddles them. So that's very interesting to see, that he sort of disobeyed the true inversion when that theme gets introduced so that he could spell his name. Now, I even mentioned that with such a repetition of this theme, you have this fugue, this 11th fugue, which to me is characterized by this repeated note gesture. It's in all four voices, one, two, three, but one, two, three, but one, two, three. I mused on what it might have meant to Bach, to a Christian like Bach, hammering out this divine number, one, two, three, over and over and over again in his most complex fugue. And interestingly enough, he writes his name into that very subject. Now, if that's the third theme in a triple fugue, and it contains the number of the Trinity, and Bach is right there spelling his name in the middle of it, well, what might that have meant? Might it have meant that Bach saw... Christ in every man? Okay, okay, excuse me. I mean, such thinking is very, very philosophical, rather abstract. But just think about that question, the fact that we can ask that question. We get to ask this question from looking at a fugue. And when has such a bare treatise, a treatise containing only notes, no words, no tempo indications, no instructions on how to play it, just notes, when has such a treatise given us such a profound thought? Did Bach see Christ in every human, including himself? Now, whether or not that thinking 
is applicable or whether or not it's even acceptable thinking, I mean, you really can dig and you really can start to ask yourself questions from this music, which don't get asked with other music. I forgot to mention this, which is sort of a big thing to forget about when I'm supposedly guiding your mind through a contrapuntal journey, but it's better late than never. So yes, that 11th counterpoint there, hammering out the name B-A-C-H in stretto. Quite impressive. Who do you want to guide your mind? Maybe WTF Bach while he talks about Johann Sebastian Bach? Why don't you let WTF Bach guide your mind? Why don't you let WTF Bach guide your mind? So, what is a mirror fugue? Let's get back to fugue 12 here. A mirror fugue. Though Bach himself never used the term, he simply called them fugue rectus and fugue inversus. It's a fugue where every single note is inverted. Everything, the whole fugue. But the term mirror fugue is nice, even though he didn't use it, because remarkably, and I will upload a photo of this and put a link to it in the episode description, you can hold a mirror across the top of any part of this fugue. And in looking at that reflection, you can see the exact same shape of what Bach wrote out in the inverted fugue. Check it out, please. This means that every note, not just the subjects, every single note is inverted. What came in the top voice will then come in the bottom voice. What goes up must come down. We've spoken a lot about inversions within a subject, but inverting the entire texture is quite different. Technically, this is actually not a difficult thing to do. In fact, with computers, you can simply hit a button that will flip upside down the notes that you just played and play it back to you upside down but the results it yields are very sterile, and if they are interesting, at best, it's a coincidence. But just to get your ears ready for some complete textural inversion, let's play a few of the biggest hits in classical music. I'll play the MIDI versions of this music and then hit the inversion button. Here is Mozart, here's the Rondo alla Turca, played normally. And now here it is inverted. for release. And here it is inverted. Debussy's Claire de Lune. And here it is inverted.
So you see, after a while, the music sounds sort of unintelligible. Not atonal or anything like that, but like a person speaking words, real words, but the sentence doesn't mean anything. Bach knows this can be done, but he doesn't find any value in it. Bach isn't simply going to hit the invert button in his computer brain. The idea that Bach solves for us here is, can you keep the sense of drama, of structure, can you somehow compose a fugue with all of its sense of climax and rest, with its tension and its release, and can you invert that note for note and still have it maintain the same narrative? Another question Bach asks is, when you invert a major triad, this is a triad made up of two-thirds, a major third on bottom and a minor third on top, a bigger interval on bottom and a smaller interval on top. When you invert this, you get the opposite. You get a minor third now on the bottom with a major third on top. Now, what is a minor third on bottom and a major third on top? It's a minor triad. This is all to say when you invert a major harmony, you get a minor one, and vice versa, black to white. So if I choose to invert this music made in D minor, suddenly it's going to sound like it's in D major, or at least some sort of major. Where is this axis of inversion? The music is in D minor, but if I choose D as an axis, anything below D has to come above D, and D being the axis itself will remain D. So choosing D as an axis now, going up a fifth, as our artifugue theme is wont to do, we would have to go a fifth below D to invert it properly. And this yields immediately the sound of the key of G. At least G major or G minor, we're not sure yet, but this is the key of G. So right there we can see that the D for an axis is too low. So what if we use our A as the axis? Well, if we use A, D is a fifth below A, so therefore we have to go a fifth above A, and suddenly we find ourselves sort of in the key of A, too high. So we have to go in between these two notes, F. How do I know if we use the major third or the minor third? Well, this is what I was talking about with the non-mathematical, non-sterile inversion. A perfect fifth, D and A, these are the pillars of the artifugue theme. So in order to rotate those pillars, you have to rotate them from the middle. And since the space between D and A is composed of seven half steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, how do you divide the number seven in half? So the axis for Bach is somewhere in between F and F sharp, leaving him to make choices about when it is appropriate to invert precisely and when it is appropriate to invert aesthetically. Let's have a listen. The first thing we note in the rectus version is that the bass voice starts. apologize about the tuning of this uh, C-sharp, it's really, really unnerving. Now in the inversus, we could tell that since it started in the bass, going up, it's going to have to start in the highest voice, the soprano going down, and we have this. Right off the bat, we can tell that those are both in the minor key. So that means that Bach is choosing not to invert this precisely. So let me play the exposition of each one of these fugues, and you can begin to hear 
how this is in fact a mirror fugue. From bottom to top now. the exposition of the rectus version, and now the exposition of the inversus will go from top to bottom, and it will be the same music flipped upside down. exposition of the inverses. Noteworthy as well is that this theme is for the first time in the Art of Fugue in three. It's in triple. Uh, we've heard it up until this point. Everything has been in a duple meter. We've always had duple, one, two, one, two, and one, two, and one. And now we have one, two, three, triple, and here we're in three. One thing that all players of this music know is that despite this very calm nature, the calm setting of this 12th fugue and its inversion, is that it's extremely difficult to play. Now, how could that be so if it's so slow and so calm? These sort of textures... That's in the right hand palming tenths, which I am able to do because I have a large hand. But for someone who doesn't have a big hand, this must be really difficult to do. On the harpsichord, it's a bit easier because the keys are just a little smaller. But that was me playing bar 14 of the inversus in the right hand, tenths going up, which means that in the exact same place in the rectus, it's going to be tenths in the left hand going down. So yes, this is sort of like a fingering puzzle because everything that your right hand plays, the left hand has to play with the same fingering. Put your hands on a desk and play thumb and then pointer finger and then middle finger and then ring finger and then pinky going out in a mirror like that. So that means that if your right hand plays something like, I don't know, say ring finger, middle finger, ring finger, pinky, then the left hand is going to have to play that exact same thing, ring finger, what did I say? Ring finger, middle finger, ring finger, pinky, something like that. Which really makes things very difficult because the hands, despite 
how ambidextrous Bach's music is, the hands never until this moment have actually been required to play the exact same thing with the same fingerings. I don't know about any keyboardists listening or just anyone who is really into thinking about the shapes of their hands, but mine aren't exactly equal. So I, in fact, do finger a few passages differently in between these two fugues, and that makes it just exceedingly difficult to, to memorize and to learn. And I mean, imagine the troubles of having to learn one fugue and then having to learn the same fugue upside down. He says, yes, you've played 11 fugues and we've done every single thing that you could possibly do with this simple theme, but now can you solve this digital puzzle? And for me, it's like a Rubik's cube. Interestingly enough, as far as the shapes go, there is only one measure where Bach deviates from the strict mirror. It is sort of a matter of some controversy, at least in the Berenreiter, the new Bach Ausgabe, the new Bach edition. They print it as Bach wrote it, and in the Henley edition, which is edited by David Moroni, he corrects it. We have in the tenor, in one version, going like this. which, if you were to invert that, would sound like this. But instead, what Bach has written is... and... I know it sounds exactly the same, however, there is just one little thing that's wrong, is that if I were to play them simultaneously, we would get this. And as you could see, this is a parallel motion, not a mirror motion, which would sound like this. That's kind of an interesting thought. Did Bach do that because there was something there which needed, which needed to somehow deviate from the true mirror? It would sound like this without the true mirror. And like this, the way that the mirror would be preserved. I mean, these are very, very detailed pickings in the sort of fugue, but that is what we were doing. So is Bach able to set out and do what I said is his idea, which is to create the same sense of narrative and drama in the mirror fugue? Well, let's let's listen to what I think are sort of the, the climactic points of this fugue in the rectus and the inversus. <laughs> is coming close to the end of the rectus version, which I sort of find that to be really, really the climax here, especially this soprano voice here. And that, oh wow, what expression. So does it sort of hold up to be the same? in the inversus? Well, let's find out. Now that is the same exact passage, and that soprano voice, which I found expressive here, is now this in the bass. 
mean, isn't that how how is this how is this even possible? A feature that I love about this is this five note figure, which sort of lets you know that one is going up and one is going down, and it's simply just walking from D to A, which will walk from A to D in the inversus. Here in the rectus, we have sort of in the middle voices. tenor and the bass and in the inverted version we have it of course going the other way around and it sounds like this and then of course which I absolutely love that it goes here in the rectus version in the bass and then in the soprano and that's really like oh, amazing the most fascinating and distinguishing feature is of course the little tail that he puts on the last bar here is the last bar of the rectus so we have that in the bass and then of course in the inversus it's going to be in the soprano and I, I just absolutely adore that. That That is really the distinguishing characteristic. That's the distinguishing moment is that we have here. This is this way. And this is this way. Okay, so now comes the part that is the most fun for you and the least work for me. We are going to listen to it a lot. So let's hear it actually with the technical inversion, with the mathematical inversion, just so we could hear how, in fact, how sterile and uninteresting just a pure... Uh, push of a button inversion this fugue would be and then we will listen to it with the proper inversion we will listen to a harpsichordist playing it playing both versions of the Muir fugue so we could see how Bach changed this principle based on a mathematical idea or based on you know a technical idea and made it something very aesthetically beautiful and then I want to do something which we could only hear on the WTF Bach podcast which is to play each version at the same time one in your right speaker and one in the left speaker I, I've never done it before, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens.
So that's a D minor chord at the end there because Bach ended in D major. And since we heard a computer play it, the computer will change it from D major into D minor. But Bach, of course, chose to keep the major in both versions. Now let's listen to the inverted version, inverted yet again by a computer. And again, we will hear it begin in what sounds like a major key because Bach begins in a minor key. Right, so we've heard the two versions of this mirror fugue if Bach would have been a computer scientist and not an aesthetician. And so now we can hear how Bach masterfully took the same music, turned it on its head, played it, as it were, in a mirror, and we have the following two versions of the same fugue. Thank you. 
David Moroni, or David Moroni, or David Moroni, not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but he is the editor of the Henley version of the Artifugue, which I recommend, as well as the Neuebach Ausgabe of the Artifugue. I think it's very important to be able to compare the two different editions and see where people, experts in the field, differ. Okay, now let's get crazy. We are going to hear one version in the left speaker, the other version in the right speaker, and survive this.
Now, if you survived that, you probably were able to hear actually the mirror happening right there in, in between your ears. That was a bit of a schizophrenic exercise, but indeed it was a unique one. And it's been, as usual, a pleasure speaking to you. Stay tuned. My next podcast, my next episode is a very special guest. And after that, we will continue with the 13th fugue, which is a mirror fugue of sorts, but it operates on yet another principle. Bach will bring this mirror fugue here to yet another level with number 13. You are listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. If you want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you, you can write to us. If you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. WTF. You can support Evan at patreon.com slash WTF. Your support is tax deductible. Evan Shitters is the founder of New Call Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit which performs classical music in atypical venues. <laughs> www.wtf. Thank you for listening.